If you are following our Bible reading challenge, which we started in January, you would be finishing the book of Job today. Today's the last day of Job. And just to give you a little perspective for those of you that don't know, we are reading the Bible in sequence as it was uh, in timeline. For instance, we started off with Genesis 1, and then uh, we jumped to Job because Job actually lived right after Noah before Abraham. This is where Job, uh, the time of Job. And since we are all reading through it, I felt compelled to teach a few lessons from it because it's a difficult book to understand. It is a hard book, it's a deep book, it's a very important book. Another reason I felt compelled to teach out of this very difficult to understand book is because it deals with pain, suffering, loss, and the concept of evil and how the God-fearing respond when faced with evil in this world, when faced with pain, suffering, and loss. This is the story of Job. Gives us a lot of direction. And I realize that every single person here, for the most part, have dealt with every single one of those, with pain, loss, with suffering. We live in an age where there's a tremendous amount of evil in our culture, in our world. The question is, how do we respond in the face of all of this. Furthermore, the world's single greatest argument against Christianity is what? Is how can a good God allow so much evil? How can a God that is kind, loving, good, preside over a world that is filled with hate, evil and cruelty if he was in fact a good and loving God why does he not just end all evil or is he not able to is he not powerful enough on top of this God is said to be all-knowing all-powerful omniscient omnipotent and if this is true the question remains why doesn't he just do something about the state of our world all the hungry children around the world the unnecessary senseless deaths of the innocent. And when it comes to the question of evil and how it relates to God, there are only two options you and I have to, we can choose from. We are left with only two options. And these two options is the first is it that God cannot stop evil because He's not all-powerful, or is it because He will not stop all evil because He's not really good? Is he unable or is he unwilling? Which one? Because how many of you will agree with me? There's, there's a lot of evil in this world. Well, then where's God? Why is he not stopping it? Because is he unable or is he unwilling? Whichever way you answer that, the conclusion will be he's either not at all, he's either not all powerful or he's either not good. So the world looks at Christianity and and uh, become very deeply disturbed. I just read a letter. A girl wrote somebody, and uh, um, another minister, and she said, um, actually, excuse me, it was the father who wrote the letter, and he says, I'm having a problem with my daughter. She was raised in, in a Christian household. Uh, we fear the Lord, except for um, she is 
very disturbed over the fact that God not only brought Job to Satan, God pointed out Job when Satan came. He says, have you considered my servant Job? Not only did he point Job out to Satan as Satan's next target, but he allowed Satan to devastate this righteous man's life. God allowed Satan to destroy all that Job owned. Beyond that, he allowed Satan to kill all of Job's children, every single one of them. And then he allowed Satan to take Job's health. And this girl is deeply disturbed because she feels that God did this simply for the purpose of showing Satan that Job would not curse him. That's the reason God said, hey, check out Job. Do what you may and see he won't curse you. He won't curse me. Was God simply attempting to make a point that to many show God to be a very petty, shows him to be loveless, careless, inhumane, and cruel? Simply to make that point. So the question we have to ask, because uh, how many of you have ever wondered about Job? <laughs> how, what do I make of this book? Any of you? Yeah. What do I make of the story that God would do that? So how, how would I respond to somebody who's had a very hard time seeing God as good in view of the story of Job? How could he be good? So I have a few thoughts that I wanted to share with you. So we're not going to walk through the book. I know of uh, John Calvin taught through the book of Job for almost two years. And I believe it was multiple nights in a week that he taught. It took him almost two years to get through the book of Job. I know of another Puritan pastor who preached out of the book of Job for 23 years. And that wasn't the wisest way of building a church, but <laughs> I guess, you know. He needed to employ like a Joel Osteen just to kind of balance it out. It would go well. But how would I respond to somebody who has this disturbed view of God, no longer viewing God as good, or maybe now starting to view God as not all-powerful? Well, the first thing is that God, uh, we have to ask the question, is God made glorious because evil exists? Or is He made less glorious because evil exists. You ask again, we have to solidify in our minds, is God more glorious because the world is filled with evil? Or is God less glorious because the world is filled with evil? Which one? Well, when you look up at the sky in the middle of the day and the sun is shining at its brightest, can you see the stars? No. When you step out in pitch black dark night to do the same, can you see the stars then? When the sky is pitch black, the stars are brightest. 
The darkened the night, the brighter the light. And in the same way, with a backdrop of evil, God's righteousness is more glorious. You see the good of God displayed in a much brighter way when you compare it to the goodness of man, which is not good. And when you look at the wickedness of man, you see the absolute purity of God. I want to give you an example uh, because I think we need to solidify this in our hearts. It doesn't isolate you from the world, but it insulates you from being disheartened by what you see happening in the world. I truly believe God wants to bring each and every one of us to a place where we can, like Job, worship Him for His goodness even when we see things happen in the world that is very, very wicked. The more wickedness we see, the more reason we have to worship Him. Are we gonna, I'll explain to you why this is so. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through 23, it reads this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst, as you yourself know. Verse 23, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Wow. Let's just stop there and take this in. This Jesus, he's talking about Jesus that was just crucified, right? This very Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God was not surprised when Jesus was arrested. His crucifixion was not sending chaos in the courtrooms or in the, in the offices of heaven looking for a plan B. No, it was absolutely according to God's plan and foreknowledge that Jesus was arrested when He was arrested and He was arrested by whom He was arrested. It was all God's plan. According to His definite plan and foreknowledge. And then He says... Let me read that again, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. He says, God did this and you're guilty. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> God planned this. It was always God's plan from all eternity. And wow, you know the price you're going to pay for what you just did? Because he did it by your hands. He took the wickedness in your heart, the hatred that you have for righteousness, and he, and he used you and your wickedness to fulfill his glorious, righteous purposes. Now, there is no question here. This verse claims two things. First, that God delivered Jesus up to be crucified. No man took his life. If somebody took his life, he'd be a martyr, not a gift. 
He gave His life. Secondly, wickedness and lawless, wicked and lawless men crucified Christ. So at the cross, we see the most selfless, loving act anyone can even imagine. That is the most loving, selfless deed. Jesus gives Himself. God gives Himself for all men to be the substitute for our sins. But while we see the most glorious gift of love, in the very same act we see the most wicked crime ever committed. Wicked men murdering the innocent and righteous man, the most innocent and most righteous man who ever lived. So we see both those we see both those together. Wickedness and because of wickedness, God's glory. Man's wickedness and God's glory reflected in the very same moment. So the point I'm attempting to make here is that God planned both truths to happen at the very same time. God planned this very wicked thing to take place because in it, His glory would be put on display for all humanity to see. I hope you get this. God planned this very wicked thing to take place because in it, that same moment, His glory was put on display. So we've covered some of this before. Imagine this with me for a moment. If there was no cross... And if we don't have in our mind's eye the picture of a butchered Jesus, would we know God's justice? No, we wouldn't. If, if, you, if we did not know how, of how God poured His wrath out on His own Son, against our sin, He poured His wrath out upon His own Son because He carried our sin, if we didn't know that, how would we know God was just? How wouldn't we, how, what, how do we know that He's not a crooked judge who when His son stands on trial, suddenly He becomes soft on crime? But He's not that way. He's a just judge. His justice is put on display for all humanity to see throughout all time. But if there was no wickedness, if you and I never sinned, Adam and Eve never sinned, Jesus would never have had to hang on the cross. And since Jesus was never put on trial and He, was ne he never hung on the cross and God's wrath ne never was poured out on Him, how would we know that God was a just God? We wouldn't know. We only know God is just because wickedness existed. Think of it this way. How would you know <clears throat> that God was a gracious God if there was never one sinner in this world? If there wasn't ever one person for God to save, how would we know He's a saving God? 
How would we know He's a gracious God? How would we know He's a merciful God? If God never had one enemy, how would we know that, he, that He's a God who loves His enemies? We would never know this. If you never had any sin in your life, how would you know? If there was nothing for you to ever repent of, how would you know that God's a forgiving God? You wouldn't know this. You see, it is God's justice. It is God's love. It is God's graciousness. It's His mercy. It's His forgiveness. All of who God is is put on display because evil existed. Because it became so dark, His brightness shone. So the glory of God is put on display, and the cross is the best example thereof. His glory is put on display when you see wickedness. Are you all understanding what I'm saying? <laughs> all right. It took the darkest, most wicked act ever, ever to display God's most glorious attributes. Because there was pain. That's why we now know God's healing. Because we were the lost sheep, we now know He's a good shepherd. Because we were His enemies... And even though we were yet His enemy, He came and died for us. Now we know He's a selfless, sacrificial, loving, and gracious God. Because our sins have been forgiven, do we now know He is a forgiving God? So all of what I have gone through as a fallen human being who came to the cross, repented of my sins, all of that, isn't that God is at fault for any of it? No, 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 those are my faults. Those are my mistakes. All of that now shows me and displays God's glory in my life. So God does absolutely take all things and make them work together for good. You see, those men who crucified Jesus are guilty of crucifying Jesus. <laughs> even though it was God's plan. I am guilty for my sin. None of it was God's doing. He didn't birth fresh evil in Judas' heart. No. He didn't birth fresh evil in Peter's heart and make, make, to make Peter betray him. He's not guilty of that. But at the same time, He uses all things to work together for His glory and His purposes. So the conclusion here is that God, God is made more glorious in the face of evil. God is made more glorious in the face of evil. God is made more glorious in the face of evil. And you can actually think about it, not just in regards to the crucifixion, how God was made glorious in the face of that evil, but how God is made glorious in the face of your life. There's not one here who wouldn't mind having all of their darkest moments displayed on a screen in front of everybody. Nobody wants that. 
Because because we all dress up nice when we come here, right? <laughs> but the truth is, if all of our, if every person here, if we could take anyone and we, we take all of your thoughts for the last 48 hours and we display them on that screen, you'd run out of this building in terror. True. We're all fallen human beings. So not only... Is God's glory displayed? Was it displayed at the evil that took place at the cross? But the evil in my life and your life is constantly displaying God's. What about God's patience? Isn't that, isn't your life an absolute perfect display of the patience of God? Absolutely. But this is what happened from the beginning to the end of the book of Job. God's glory is being displayed. Satan is being conquered. And that is what that's what's happening in our times that we live. When you walk through evil times is when you have a greater opportunity to glorify God than when things are easy and comfortable. So really, God called you and I to live in this place at this time during this culture that we're in, right? It's an amazing thing. This is your moment. This is your hour. So we're answering the question, how would I respond if somebody judges God's goodness for allowing Job to go through so much suffering? And that's the, that's the sin of this generation. They judge God. They judge God. Eve, in the garden, judged God when she realized that she, she didn't have free will. From God's perspective, she wasn't, she, didn't have, she wasn't free. She wasn't free. Today, people judge God still because they're not free. They don't see themselves free. So the first is, we have to realize that God has made more glorious, not less, when evil exists. Number two, the value of God's glory is infinitely greater than the value of human comfort, than the value of personal prosperity, or the value of human life. This right here is one of the most glorious truths because it absolutely takes a person who, 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 who does not have the right mindset about who he really is and why he really is here on earth. It really helped me shift my mind to a different place with the Lord where we can now live with gratitude even when we don't have what we thought we always wanted to have. Okay. The value of God's glory is infinitely greater than the value of my comfort, my prosperity, or even my life. You and I were created for the same purpose. We were created to glorify God. Now, some might be doctors, others might be authors, others are singers, and then there are other people. 
Everybody has the same purpose in life, and that is to glorify God with the life that you have. That's your purpose. And for most part, because of covetousness, which is the mantra of the West and the mantra of our generation, covetousness is what causes you to always look for a different purpose. I remember walking through a park when um, the book, The Purpose Driven Life, came out, Rick Warren, and I remember a lady sitting in this park on a bench. She had four kids, and she was reading The Purpose Driven Life, trying to find her purpose. <laughs> if there's ever something that would blind you, it's that. Pick that book up, you'll be blind for the rest of your life. <laughs> you'll never find your purpose after that one. <laughs> because it gives you the... It gives you the the sense that there's a purpose beyond where you're at. Somebody came to me and says, hey, you know, do you, find, do you want to find a purpose in your life? You, you know, for your life you need to, I'm like, what makes you think I don't know the purpose for my life? <laughs> but we, we, we assume that everybody is looking for something else, somewhere else, someone else. So when you ask almost anybody, hey, do you want the purpose for your life? Yeah, I do. I've been trying to find it for 60 years. <laughs> uh, no, that's called covetousness. You cannot glorify God with the life you have. And that's why you're always looking for a purpose beyond the purpose of glorifying God with the life you have, with those you have, and where you're at. So the value of God's glory is infinitely greater than the value of human comfort, personal prosperity all my life. Anybody who reads the Bible for a, from a humanist perspective will find Scripture to make very little sense. This is why I find one of the big reasons why unsaved people do not understand Scriptures. It's foolishness to them. Because they read it with a humanistic perspective. That's not the only reason. They're dead in their sins. They haven't been quickened. They haven't been regenerated. And therefore, the things of God is foolishness to them. But one of the reasons it's foolishness to them is because they think from the perspective of man's value and God serving him because he's so valuable. The Bible was not written for a humanist mindset. I want to give an example. While the humanist believes man is, to be, man is ultimately good, Scripture declares man to be totally depraved. While the humanist believes man to be deserving of all good things, deserving of prosperity, you don't deserve to be poor, you deserve to be equal to all, Nation and you deserve to be loved. Meaningful. While humanists think Please this way, Scripture teaches that fallen with man deserves only that you one think thing, needs and that's hell. We hope you what can join us soon for a Sunday God, experience. Justice. For more information, please visit www.christnation.tv. Thank you and God bless you. It is only a humanist that would demand God show humanity mercy. Where is your mercy? <laughs> Imagine you standing in front of a judge and you start, you start judging the judge for not being merciful. Have you ever thought about that? <laughs> Once I went, when I moved here from South Africa, um, I think I went, I, I got 11 tickets in a row, Chris. Yeah. I'm like, what? why are you guys so uptight? <laughs> I'm just racing. 
<laughs> but I was blessed because the first six tickets, I had an international driver's license. So when the cop pulls you over and you give him your in international driver's license, mine was about this size. I'm like, here's my license, sir. He goes, uh, um, what's this? I'm like, it's an international driver's license. He goes, I'm like, yeah, so if I don't pay it, you're going to have to send me, you're going to have to send me the bill at my home address, which is in South Africa. <laughs> he goes, okay, you know what? Drive, so drive slower. Okay, sir. And so eventually I got so many tickets on my real driver's license, I had to go to the, um, to court a few times. The last time I went, I remember sitting down and, um, there were a couple of guys sitting with me in the front row and I could, and there was a lot of rebellion going on, but I was in my suit and in my tie. I was here to apologize, <laughs> not to fight. And, <laughs> and the prosecutor said, or the defendant, whoever the guy was, he goes like, Hey, so I just want to let you guys know if the, 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 the more, um, What's the word he used? It was such a long time ago. He said, the more um, repentant you seem, contrite you seem, whatever word he used, uh, uh, the more mercy this judge is going to show you. But if you're going to demand that you're not guilty, you know, then, this, then she's going to give you the maximum amount of punishment here, okay? So you're about to all lose your driver's license if you want to give her an attitude. I'm like, I'm not here for an attitude. So, the, so when it was my time to walk up front, I said... Uh, Ma'am, I'm so sorry. I'll, I will not do this again. But please, I beg you, I need my license. <laughs> so, uh, she, so she didn't take it away from me. But think about it. The only, only a humanist, a man who values humanity and the glory of humanity is on a pedestal and elevated, only a person with that mind could demand God show mercy. You see, every time there's a national tragedy, I'm sure you've seen, newspapers always, where was God? See, only a humanist mind could ask that question. Only a person who thinks way, way too little of God and way, way too much. Let me do it this way. Only a person who thinks way, they bring God all the way down here and they lift themselves all the way up here. Only a person that does that can demand to know where God was when I needed Him. Where was He when I needed Him? See, we have to realize that mercy cannot be demanded. The moment we demand mercy and grace from God, it is no longer mercy or grace. You can only demand something you truly deserve. And you don't deserve mercy, and you don't deserve grace. You deserve justice. So you can't demand mercy and grace from him, unless you're a humanist. Until God's glory becomes a person's highest value and a, and a person's ultimate goal to glorify God with the life that you have, the book of Job cannot be understood. You cannot read Job while at the same time elevating man to be equal to God. There is no other book that displays the sovereignty and the supremacy of God in the degree that the book of Job does. It is so clear in the book of Job that everything is under God. And even Satan, 
is God's devil. And he cannot do anything unless God is willing. Because let me tell you, when you think of the two questions, is it because God is unable or is it because God is unwilling? Let me tell you, folks, there is a lot of evil in this world and God is not unable. He is God. He's all-powerful. So it leaves you with one option. Was he willing for Job to go through what Job went through? Well, obviously so. And he's absolutely all-powerful. Otherwise, Satan wouldn't have needed permission <laughs> to do what he did. Isaiah 40, verse 15 through 17 says this, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for burnt offering. Look at verse 17. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. The nations of the world. Put them all together in one bucket on the one side of the scale and God on the other side of the scale. And guess what? They measure up to be nothing in comparison to the glory of Almighty God. But not to the humanist. The humanist is... Where's my parking? I've been believing for it. My parking spot that I always get. Somebody said, oh no. If God sees man in such a trivial light, then how can you claim that God is love? If God looks at the nations and he goes, it's like dust. It's like nothing. How is he loving? I thought he was a loving God. Well, now to emphasize the worth of God's glory in comparison to all humans, it does not diminish God's love. It enlarges His love for you. Can you see that? To recognize human life as being infinitely less valuable than God's glory if you want to compare the two, it helps us understand just how amazing it is that God even cared for us at all. Can you imagine? Why would He even love us? That's an amazing thing. Seeing it in this context is what allows you to see just how amazing God's love truly is. That's why the psalmist said in Psalm 8 verse 4, what is man that you are even mindful of him? The psalmist had the right perspective. He wasn't an overbloated, egotistical human demanding their rights every day. My rights, my rights. No, that's not. Where's my mercy? Where's my grace? I'm forgiven. I can choose Christ whenever I want. It's me. It's up to me. I can do that. No. No, no, wait a minute. It's, it's amazing. You see, what's... Let me say it this way. It's not, it's not shocking that, men, that many people are going to go to hell. What, what is shocking is the fact that God's going to save some of them. That's, that's the shocking thing. 
That's what displays the fact that he's so loving. Why would he even save anybody? You see, it is in Psalm 8 verse 4, it says, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Why would you care for us? There's not a hair that falls from your head that God's not aware of. It is our human sinfulness that justifies God's judgment on us. Think about it. What we actually deserve is God's justice, right? If we are to receive God's justice, then we would receive only every bit of the hell we richly deserve. But thank God for His mercy, His kindness toward us, His love toward us, and His grace. In Ephesians 2 verse 3, it tells you and I what category we fit into in God's creation. It says, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, like everyone who gave themselves to the craving of their flesh and the desires of their thoughts, like the rest, like them, we were by nature deserving what? Wrath. Wrath. <laughs> we deserve, we are like them, and we deserve God's. That is what we deserve. It says right here, we were by nature deserving. Mercy, uh-uh. Grace, uh-uh. Forgiveness, uh-uh. Love, no. Wrath, oh. So when I do get a little bit of grace or mercy, when I do, when I am able to eat the crumbs from the table, I'm grateful. Thank you, God, that you even thought about me. Thank you, God, that you, that you even cared. Because I can't demand that you do. Who am I? When looking at this verse and we see how we are by nature deserving of wrath, Every breath we take is undeserving. Here I am breathing, my heart's beating, yet I deserved wrath. Every breath I take is on the basis of God's mercy towards me. He's been patient, he's been long-suffering, he's been good, he's, been pro he's providing. Every time my heart beats, it's another display of God's mercy toward me. Every person who's still alive on the earth is being treated better by God than what he truly deserves. You see, nobody thinks of this because nobody understands the book of Job. <laughs> but let me say that again. Every person from the North Pole to the South Pole, from the East to the West. <laughs> let me not get into it. <laughs> but the whole earth, however you see it, the whole earth, every person, who is still alive on the earth today is being treated better by God than what that person deserves to be treated. You got breath in your lungs, you're breathing, your heart's beating. It's God's mercy. Why? Because you deserve wrath. But look at what you've got. People can't be thankful for anything they've got anymore because they've lost sight of who they really are deserving of wrath. They've lost sight of the, tr the reality of who they are, sinners. But we don't know what it means to be a sinner. We think, no, no, I wasn't really a sinner. It was just 
you know, mistakes. You see, the sin that you commit, if you compare it to those people around you, is not that bad. All you have to do, if you're, if you're like at the bottom of the totem pole in a really holiness church, and you're at the bottom of the totem pole, all you need to do to feel better is go, is go play around downtown for Friday night, Saturday night, and you're going to feel really good about yourself. <laughs> like, I've been clubbing for two nights. I am the holiest man around in this club. You know, so what we do is we compare ourselves one with another. But if we look at who God really is, and then we look at who we are, we realize how far we have fallen short of the glory of God. It works like this. Given this same analogy, and I want to do it again just because I want this point to be driven home. Let's say, for instance, a few of us go, go together and we start playing basketball. And let's say Basui and I, we get into, uh, we start playing football instead of boss on the basketball court <laughs> and uh what happens is he grabs the ball from me and he wrestles the ball away from him i'm like stop it basui if you do it again i'm gonna slap you right let me be more manly i'm gonna punch you <laughs> don't do that again if you do that again i'm gonna punch you in the face okay now all the guys we were playing with said, hey, 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 cool it down, cool it, cool it, okay, let's just, it's just a game, all right. But let's say, for instance, I'm in a room, and the President of the United States walks through the room, and I say, I repeat the same words to him. I'm going to punch you in the face. Guess what will happen? I'll get tackled by all these feds, right, Secret Service guys, and they won't just slap me on the wrist. I mean, that's, that's a crime right there. That's a threat. Not because I said anything different. It's just who I said it to that mattered, right? In the same way, if you sin against me or you sin against you or you sin against the government or you sin against whoever, wife or children, you don't really feel that bad because you're like, you know what? They sin against me too, so. But when you sin against God... That's a crime in a completely different category. And so we don't, we don't take our sins seriously because we don't know who we sinned against. Every one of our sins is against God. Every person who is still alive on earth today is being treated better by God than what he truly deserves because he sinned against God. And every sin is deserving of death. So no matter how much poverty, no matter how much suffering, with God, there can never be an accusation of injustice. He's not being unjust. When we look at how humans treat one another, we see how governments, some governments treat those in their countries. We can find horrific injustices. However, with God, there is simply no way for Him to treat us unjustly. He's allowing us to live even while we deserve wrath. If we believe God is treating us unfairly or that we have received injustice from Him, remember we're talking about Job. If we believe that God is treating us unfairly, that we have received injustice from Him, as Job implied, it is only because we have not yet grasped the, de de the degree to which we have offended Him. 
It is only because we have not yet grasped the penalty for the sin we have committed against him. I remember when I was at college in South Africa, every single debate I got into regarding Christianity always boiled down to this one thing. Quote, they would say, how can God be good if he drowned the whole entire population in Noah's flood? That's not a good God. That's a cruel God. Women, mothers with babies, mothers who are pregnant, and God just, he just basically murdered them all. He drowned them all. How is he good? Well, the truth is, God was perfectly just in, dr in drowning the entire human population on earth. It was, it was purely by the mercy and grace of God that he saved Noah and his family. You see, we ought not to be shocked that God drowned the entire population. That shouldn't shock us. I mean, they were evil continually, the Bible says. It shouldn't shock us that God drowned all of them. We ought to be astonished that he even saved one family. That's what should take us back and go, oh, wow, he is good. But we can't see that because we've lost the sinfulness of sin. We've lost our perspective of how wicked our deeds really are and against who they are. It's God, perfectly holy God. God ne never did anything wrong by flooding the earth. He had every right to do just that and more. In Job 40, verse 1 through 5, it says, And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? That is, in one statement, our generation. Fault finders. You'll say, well, you know, God elects. No, he doesn't. That wouldn't make him just. That wouldn't make him fair. By the way, there's a difference between fairness and justice, right? Fairness is when men, when two kids in the house, well, that's not fair. She got two cookies. I only got one. That's not fair. That's not fair. I compare myself to what she got, and I didn't get what she got. That's not fair. That's fairness. Justice is completely different. Justice is the individual being measured against God's standards. That's justice. And here God says to Job, shall a fault finder contend with me? You trying to find fault with me? I remember speaking at Trinity College a few months ago. And this is the one thing I wanted to drive home. This is a seminary up north in Deerfield. And I, the one thing I wanted to drive home, recognizing the spirit within the room, I'm like, stop judging God. Stop judging God. If God says that marriage is between a man and a woman, stop judging God by telling him, no, you're wrong, that is love. And he goes, no, it's not. Excuse me, LGBT is love. No, it's not. He said it's not. Stop judging him. Stop telling him he's wrong and you're right. <laughs> That's a judgment on God. What's wrong with love? Love is good. Um, Knowing the perfect righteousness of God and the sinfulness of man is the basis for understanding God's freedom to act as He wishes. As He wishes. 
You see, God teaches us how we, to, how we are to respond in pain and suffering. But I want to tell you how to respond. If you're going to go through, if you've had pain or you've got pain and suffering in your life, you, you're experiencing loss in your life, or maybe you will in the future, God teaches us how to respond to pain and suffering and loss by looking at the account of Job. We have to realize that Satan was utterly defeated when Job, instead of cursing God and shaking his fist at God, blessed him instead, Satan was silenced. This is how Satan is silenced, is when you repeat Job's words, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He is God. You know, when Eli, when Eli was sleeping one night, and ah, Samuel, thank you, came to him and said, hey, did you call me? He said, no, I didn't. He goes back. He, has, he is Samuel. He jumps up and he comes to Eli. What's going on? He says, I didn't call you. The third time he says, nah, next time, say, Lord, speak. And so Samuel said that, and God spoke to him. But what did God speak to him about? Eli. <laughs> and he said, I'm going, to take, I'm going to take everything from him, even his life. Because he did not discipline his children. And so, the next morning, Eli wakes up. He says, hey, Samuel. Did it happen again? He goes, yeah. He goes, what did the Lord say? He goes, He says, no, 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 tell me, what did the Lord say? You know what Eli said? After Samuel told him, he said, he's God. Let him do as he wishes. He's God. And take my life. He's God. Am I going to plead my case? Am I going to argue with him? Am I going to find fault with him? Am I going to... Am I going to sit here judging him, thinking like, well, that's not how I would do it. I wouldn't drown the whole world. <laughs> I'd be way more, more patient. I would be way more gracious. Uh, yeah, no, I, I would be, I would be, I'd be forgiving. I'd just forgive everybody. But that's how people live. They really see themselves as better than God would God. God drowned the whole world, and that was the absolute best decision. He sent Christ to the cross. He crushed his own son. That was the absolute best decision, the most righteous. And Eli said, he's God. Let him do what he will. So knowing the perfect righteousness of God and the sinfulness of man, this is the basis for understanding God's freedom to do as he pleases. Even when you see all the evil that's, that's running around the world today, allow God, allow God to allow whatever He wants and to stop whatever He wants to. God teaches us how we are to respond. We are to respond just like Job. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of God. He's God. Let Him do as He wish. Believers in the new covenant are encouraged to respond to pain, suffering, loss, by this account of Job, when we find ourselves in deep pain that seems to have no point, 
We don't understand the purpose for it. All those people standing around the cross, they didn't understand the purpose of Christ's death. Job, sitting, on a, on a, sitting in, in a, a heap of ashes, with boils all over his body, he did not understand the purpose of his pain. God evidently doesn't feel the need to explain himself. But above that situation in the heavenlies, there's a tremendous amount of activity that nobody saw happening, but that was absolutely happening. Job 13, 15, he says, though he slay me, yet I'll trust him. Trusting him and blessing him in the deepest valley you've ever been in is how Satan is silenced and is conquered. In that way, Satan's greatest hope for you will be shattered. Glorifying God in pain and loss is Satan's complete defeat. Look at what James says about Job in James 5.11. It says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purposes of the Lord. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Think about it. Looking at Job, he says, we've seen how, how compassionate and merciful God is. <laughs> James is reassuring believers that God is, is a, uh, has a purpose in their suffering and in their loss. God has a purpose in it. Not a hair falls from your head without there being a purpose to everything in your life. Patience is required to prove you trust God in the dark. I want to end by showing you just how there is a link, connection between Job and Jesus. When we read through Job, not only are we taught that God is sovereign, that all things are in His control, that not even Satan can do one thing outside of God's permission. Somebody goes, no, 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 Satan's in control. You don't want to believe that, trust me. You literally don't want to believe that. What gives you more comfort? That God is out of control and Satan's in control? Or that God is in control and he allows Satan to do certain things, but every time he allows Satan to do certain things is to play into his own hands so his own purposes may be established just as they were at the cross. Right? You don't want to believe that God's out of control for two reasons. Number one, the Bible says he is in control. But number two, you would be absolutely hopeless. Think about the fear a person lives in if they believe that it was just Satan. You know, somebody backed up into my car. That was just Satan. That's Satan. You know, I wish you know, God was in control, then that wouldn't have happened. Well, imagine that person's next thought. Well, what, what's next? What's going to happen next? Imagine the fear people live in if they can't believe that God is still on the throne. So finally, let's look at five ways how Jesus is the greater Job. Both Job and Jesus are called righteous and blameless. Job chapter 1 verse 8, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. That's what the Bible says about Job. Number two, both Job and Jesus suffered. Number three, 
Both Job and Jesus fought a spiritual battle. Both Job and Jesus were the suffering saints. Number four, both Job and Jesus were restored. Do you read through how God restores Job? He had 3,000 animals, now he had 6,000. 7,000 now at 14,000. But Job had 10 children, they all died, and then God allowed him to have 10 more children, not 20. Why not? Because his first first 10 kids weren't lost. He knew where they were in the presence of God. And if you know where something is, it's not lost, isn't it? It's not lost, is it? So God did multiply his kids. He ends up having 20 kids. And so we see that both Job and Jesus are righteous. Both Job and Jesus were suf- suffered. Both Job and Jesus fought a spiritual battle. We see that both Job and Jesus were restored. How God highly exalted him and bestowed him, gave to him the name that is above every other name. They were both restored. And number, number five, finally, both jo- uh, number five, Job interceded for his friends, but Jesus saved his enemies. Job was a type of Christ, but Jesus is the greater Job. Amen. Did you get something out of the word?